Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. This program was sponsored by the Jesse and John Dance Fund. Since 1962, these lectures have been a forum for distinguished scholars of national and international reputation who have concerned themselves with the impact of science and philosophy on man's perception of a rational universe. Good evening. My name is Marshall Landolt. I'm the Dean of the Graduate School, and on behalf of the University of Washington, I'm really honored to welcome all of you here for tonight's uh, Dan's lecture. We're here this evening because of a very generous bequest from the estates of Mr. John Dance and his wife, Jessie. They wanted to use the, the money that they left to the university to make it possible, and I'm going to quote from their bequest, to make it possible for us to bring distinguished scholars of national and international reputation who have concerned themselves with the impact of science and philosophy on man's perception of a rational universe. And I think our sponsor, our speaker tonight, uh, is exemplary of that, that goal. I'm really pleased to tell you that we have several members of the Dan's family with us this evening, and we're very pleased that they're here. And now I am honored to introduce tonight's speaker. Dr. Cornell West describes himself as an intellectual freedom fighter. After attending public schools in Sacramento, Dr. West went on to Harvard University, where he graduated magna cum laude. He then went to Princeton University, where he received both his master's and his PhD degrees. Dr. West returned to Princeton in 1987 as professor of religion and director of the Afro-American Studies Department. He then later moved to Harvard, where he currently serves as professor of African-American studies and philosophy of religion. Recently, Dr. West was promoted to the rank of university professor, a title that's held by only 14 out of Harvard's 2,200 faculty members. Dr. West is one of the first black scholars to be appointed to this highest university post. He has been called one of the most authentic, brilliant, prophetic, and healing voices in America today. His work, whose influences include American transcendentalism, the Baptist church, European philosophy, and the Black Panthers, uh, seeks to revive the best of liberalism, populism, and democratic socialism. Dr. West has written countless articles in 15 books, including the bestseller, Race Matters. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Cornell West. Thank you very much. God bless you. God bless you. Thanks so much. Thank you so very much. Definitely. Thank you very much, though. Definitely. 
Thank you so very much. What a blessing to be here at the University of Washington, Seattle. I'd like to thank my new friend and sister, Vice Provost Marsha Landolt, for those very kind and generous remarks. I'd like to thank my new friend and sister, Yvette Fields, for not only picking me up at the airport and engaging in such high-quality conversation, but being so warm and hospitable, and similarly so for Sister Essence Pierce. I had a wonderful dinner just a few minutes ago, and I met Brother Kip Shoke, who read a powerful poem, who happened to be the grandson of my masterful Sunday school teacher. <laughs> Shiloh Baptist Church in Sacramento, California, named was Sarah Ray. We wrestled with the book of Job that would make both Jung and Kierkegaard proud. Carol Lee Dance was, was there, and we thank her so very much for both her family's generosity as well as her deep concern about the quality of intellectual life here at University of, of Washington. And as you can imagine, I do have a few friends here. I've got to say something about the brilliant young philosopher, Professor Paul Taylor, who's a very good friend of mine. I don't know whether he's here, but if he is, when you see him, give him a hug for me because he has not just great promise, but already exemplified much of it. Professor John Taves, I always mention when I come to Seattle, because I was a pupil of his back in 1973 under the great H. Stuart Hughes in his course, European Intellectual History. John Taves was my teaching assistant. And uh, he means much to me, and I'm told that he's been here many, many, many years. And I'm sure some of you know of him, please tell him. Hello as well, and similarly so for Brother Charles Johnson, that masterful writer and teller of tales. Last but not least, I cannot come to Seattle without mentioning the great Jacob Lawrence. The great Jacob Lawrence. We miss him so. We miss him so. And I think it's appropriate in talking about race matters keep in mind the role of the courageous artists, and that's why I begin on a Socratic note. I hope that I say something that thoroughly unsettles you. <laughs> that's what we're here for. Not proselytizing, not advertising. We're here to be unnerved, maybe even for an instant unhoused. I cannot conceive of talking about any evil, any form of unjustified suffering and unnecessary social misery, any form of undeserved harm or unwarranted pain without talking about the need for courage. And what I love about Socrates is his flat nose and pop belly, <laughs> pop eyes, supposedly ugly in this public space of Athens is that he went about trying to raise very painful questions, the queries that we'd rather not ask but know we cannot sidestep or hold at arm's length. The unexamined life is not worth living. You all know that better than most at the University of Washington. 
elite institution of higher learning, fundamentally committed to the quest for true small t knowledge, small k. Plato, the apology in line 38a says, the unexamined life is not the life for the human being. But Malcolm X added on the corner of 125th Street and 7th Avenue, <laughs> the examined life is painful. And who will muster the courage to use and deploy their crit critical intellect? And I didn't say intelligence, I said intellect. Because Richard Hofstadter is right in his classic anti-intellectualism anti in America of 1963. America praises intelligence, but fears intellect. It's a business civilization. It's a market-driven civilization. Who has time to wrestle with the frightening question? And of course, race, the vicious legacy of white supremacy, has been for so long a dogma in American history. We hit it hard in 1861. We hit it again in the 1960s. But for the most part, it's still one of those tacit assumptions and presuppositions we'd rather sidestep and hold at arm's length. Quest for self-knowledge. What kind of person? Are you and I really? What kind of community, what kind of nation are we really? Do we have the courage to look ourselves in the mirror candidly, critically, honestly, and acknowledge the underside, the night side of ourselves, the human predicament of American democracy, the world? William Butler Yeats is right when he says it takes more courage to dig deep into the abyss of one's own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. And you can't talk about race and race matters and diversity without wrestling with legacy of white supremacy in which it takes such tremendous courage to think critically about ourselves. That race is not some ghettoized peripheral issue it has to do with the quality of persons that we think we are, the quality of American society that we think we are. And in the end, the quality of the species, humanity as a whole. Now, I'm sure many students here at this grand university will never forget those moments in which you look closely at your assumptions and presuppositions and recognize that your worldview rests on pudding. That's one of the differences between education and credentialization. That's one of the differences between acknowledging change, transformation, metamorphosis as a result of critical thinking and critically engaging the underside of who you are, the underside of American democracy. And yet at the same time, we recognize that it's so easy to fall back into those habits of thinking and expectation and orientation, business as usual. Now granted, Socrates, like Jesus, never wrote a word. Now don't encourage that for undergrads or graduate students here. <laughs> University of Washington, write your papers, put forward your nuanced formulations and sophisticated interpretations, adduce your evidence, draw your valid conclusions. I hope your professors understand the argument. 
And it's not really true, of course. Socrates did write at the very end of his life in prison the hymn to Apollo and versified the fables of Aesop. He began to take seriously that voice that he heard throughout his life. Socrates practiced music. Socrates practiced music. Maybe you need some art to free you from the tyrannical rule of reason that you think results in the level of self-mastery and control that allows you to control those deep appetites. What's fascinating about Socrates, and it's pointed out by Leo Strauss in his 1958 lectures at University of Chicago on the problem of Socrates, Socrates laughed once. <laughs> if we take seriously the four sources <laughs> that render the agent of Socrates, Plato's dialogues, profound, often unpersuasive, Xenophon's less profound but fascinating dialogues, of course, the satirical depiction of Socrates in the clouds by Aristophanes, and of course, Aristotle's cold and disinterested analysis of Socrates' views. But he laughed once when he was asked, how should we bury you? And he said, anyhow, if you can catch me. <laughs> but that's interesting to me. He laughed once, and not only that, but we never find that he wept as much as once. No tears. Married to Xanthippe, three sons, no tears. As important as thinking critically is in relation to wrestling with the legacy of white supremacy. The Socratic embodiment of the legacy of Athens is a necessary but not sufficient condition for wrestling with race. And that's why I take seriously the legacy of Jerusalem. Jeremiah wails and Elijah cries and Jesus weeps because they love so deeply, they care so much. And we will never be able to come to terms with race matters unless we confuse a spirituality of genuine questioning, interrogating, scrutinizing, pushing ourselves against the wall, but at the same time, allowing tears to flow precisely because one has to open one's soul and acknowledge one is not always in control. Some passion, some connection to something bigger than oneself, to situate oneself in a story larger than oneself, to be able to locate oneself in a narrative grander than oneself, break out of the egocentric predicament. Exactly. They acknowledge that reality of the other, capital O, that Levinas, Simone Weil, Dostoevsky, and Ellison, and Toni Morrison encourage us to do. How do we bring together the spirituality of genuine critical questioning with the spirituality of genuine compassion and service to others? And by spirituality, I'm not talking about some ephemeral phenomenon. Know in the academy, when people talk about spirituality, think of New Age and a whole host of other popular phenomena. But no, by spirituality, I mean self-involved and self-invested struggle that takes us outside of our own self and connects us to others, ideals, causes, movements, social momentum. 
And of course, I could simply provide a grand example of that spirituality of critical questioning and spirituality of deep love and compassion by turning on John Coltrane's Love Supreme and just sit down. <laughs> just shut my mouth. I'll read a chapter, Toni Morrison's Beloved. I'll keep track of that American Hamlet, Blanche Dubois, the streetcar named Desire, that white blues brother born in Columbus, Mississippi, named Tennessee Williams. Meaning what? Meaning that as artists, they exemplify both the Socratic moment on the one hand, but also the prophetic moment on the other. Condition of truth is to allow critical intellect to be displayed and enacted. Condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. That sits at the center of the struggle for freedom and especially the struggle for freedom of people of African descent. two fundamental questions that sit at the very core of that struggle. And of course, it's always a tradition of struggle that says, whosoever will, let him or her come, if you're willing to pay the cost. If you're willing to make a fundamental decision to keep track of the humanity of each and every one of us, whatever the evil, white supremacy, male supremacy, vast economic inequality, national arrogance, class haughtiness, losing sight of the humanity of disabled people, elderly, gay brothers, lesbian sisters. This is not cheap PC chit chat. We're talking about historical challenges. When I think back to Harriet Tubman's Ida B. Wells Barnett's, A. Philip Randolph's, Martin King's, Fannie Lou Hamer's, white brothers like Miles Horton, I'm sure they have his autobiography, The Long Haul, in this glorious library here. Hope has been checked out repeatedly. Lydia Maria Child, a white sister that wrote appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans in 1833, responding to the great David Walker's appeal of 1829. They're wrestling with first the question of what does it mean to be human, especially in light of a vicious of white supremacy in which people's humanity is perennially called into question interrogated, has to be proven, never taken for granted. Told they have the wrong hips and lips and noses and hair texture and skin pigmentation and the world begins to believe it. Told they're less beautiful, less intelligent, less moral. Rationalizations for subjugation and subordination. Enslavement, Jim Crow, Jane Crow, discriminated against. Not solely as victims, our right-wing brothers and sisters are wrong. Never solely as victims. The victimization has been in place, but the sense of agency has always been exercised and enacted. When you look at the best of the struggle for freedom in the midst of this American civilization that presupposed that it was the exemplar of freedom and liberty. 
What does it really mean to be human? And you all know from your classes here that the English word human derives from the Latin humando, which means burying. Burying, I like to remind professors of humanity about that. <laughs> you know, the, you are the ones into those bodies in the coffin. Those bodies that are now the culinary delight of terrestrial worms. Yes, why? Because at that particular moment, the three dimensions of time are brought together, past, present, and future, especially in a civilization so obsessed with futurity, but shuns the past and views the future as simply a repetition of the present and doesn't want to view that future as qualitatively different forcing us to interrogate the most fundamental and basic institutional and structural arrangements, just everybody fitting in, even as things become more colorful among the middle and upper middle classes and well-to-do, but the class hierarchy still in place. The imperial policy still in place, oftentimes, though not always. What does it really mean to be human? Well, you see, when you actually look at the history of spirituals, oh Lord, how come I born here so suffer clean in insight? Or the blues, or jazz, or rhythm and blues, and yes, even a little hip hop too. <laughs> they remind us that we are fundamentally two-legged, linguistically, two-legged. Let, let me say that again. I want, I want you to get this point. <laughs> I want you to get this point. That we are fundamentally two-legged, featherless, linguistically conscious creatures born between urine and feces. You see, that's the discourse of the funk in the history of black freedom. not something to be laughed at. See, when Ezra Pound said that Walt Whitman is an exceeding stench, but he is America, I mean, he's from Idaho, you know. <laughs> he said it in London. Black folks say, no, you think the stench and the stank is where you start. No, no. We start with the funk. <laughs> we start with the raw history, the raw reality, and the mortality denied by most of American culture and civilization. That we are a people who have been on intimate terms with forms of death in the most death-denying, death-ducking, and death-dodging of all modern civilizations. The mainstream may go sentimental and talk about purity and he or she who is pristine and opt for the happy ending, but we start with slavery, a form of social death in the midst of this death-denying civilization. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult to talk about race and the legacy of white supremacy, one of the reasons why we usually have to re wait for a catastrophe and crisis to hit before we wrestle with the issue head on is because we live in such a shallow and hollow culture that is so obsessed with comfort and convenience and contentment, they don't want to deal with the funk. They don't want to deal with the raw reality. They don't want to deal with the, the darkness that is shot through, not just America, but every civilization. 
No accident that Disneyland and Disney World brag that no one has ever died on their premises. <laughs> Quintessentially American. Nobody died, is there life there? No, it's just fun. Oh. Yes. The great Heisecker in his book of 1939, Homo Luden says, fun was a term constructed and concocted in America. What a privilege and spoiled folk to think that somehow they can make it through history and not confront the tragic and comic dimensions of the world. Remain sentimental, skate through history in the form of what? Absolute denial for the most part of the forms of death. It's no accident the U.S. Constitution doesn't even refer to slavery, slaves, or Negroes. And you've all seen Joseph Ellis's new book, Founding Brothers. It's on the bestseller list. Surprise me, America's a strange place. Because <laughs> it's a serious book, and you don't usually see serious text on that list. <laughs> Take a look at that chapter three called The Silence and the Consensus of the Founding Brothers to not come to terms with the petition of the Quakers to deal with slavery, sidestep it, overlook it. 22% of the inhabitants of the 13 colonies enslaved Africans. But somehow think that as Malcolm used to say, the chickens won't come home to roost, that history won't haunt you. The same is true in the discourse of innocence. America is unique among modern nations to believe that it began with innocence. F.O. Matheson, the towering Harvard literary critic and Christian socialist and gay brother who taught in Cambridge for 42 years, used to begin many of his lectures by saying, would America be unique among modern nations to, be, to move from perceived innocence to corruption without a mediating stage of maturity? <laughs> That's a serious question. You might grow old and you might grow big, but when will you grow up? Race is a litmus test, not just for justice, it's a litmus test for maturity. Peter Pan mentality, young forever. No history, no time, no mortality. Selective memory. And yet we know, 1861, we fight a war over an institution not even invoked in the Constitution. 13th Amendment refers to an institution not even alluded to in the Constitution. Mendacity, hypocrisy. So, oh, Brother West, you're a little hard on America. It's a much more complex place than that. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. First 72 years of the Republic, 49 years, were headed by presidents who were slaveholders. The only presidents reelected during that period were slaveholders. The majority of Supreme Court were Southerners, most of them slaveholders. Very complicated democracy. <laughs> Seneca put it so well when he said that he or she who learns how to die unlearns slavery. Montaigne says to philosophize is to learn how to die. Plato has Socrates say philosophy itself is a meditation on in preparation for death. 
because to live critically, intensely, and abundantly is to confront forms of death. You can't produce spirituals in the blues, or Sarah Vaughn, or Curtis Mayfield, without wrestling with the legacies of forms of death with which people of African descent have had to wrestle with. And at the only ones, I'm just using this one example because there's such an exemplary group in this regard. 1861, war. And I think about the discussion these days about the flag in South Carolina and Mississippi. And I say to myself, my God, what an impoverished discourse to think that that flag is fundamentally about black pain on the one hand and the valor of white soldiers and the Confederacy on the other. Nobody wants to say it, but it was about the possible death of American democracy. It was the violent, organized insurrection to overthrow the U.S. government. And that's not the Black Panther Party, that's the Confederacy I'm talking about. <laughs> had to do with notions of democracy and citizenship. It's not just about black folk over here and white southerners over there. You didn't even hear it articulated because our imagination when it comes to race is so eviscerated. The denial is still so much at work that it's just about responding to the psychological sensitivities of this group and the psychological sensitivities of this group. No, no. Race has been, we know, not just the most explosive issue, not just the most difficult dilemma, not just America's rawest nerve. It has the capacity to ring down the curtain on American democracy. It almost did. And it may almost again. Every chocolate city is a ticking time bomb. Cincinnati is just a peak of an iceberg. Just a peak of an iceberg. We'll debate later. Meaning what? For four years, 620,000 people dead. Over what? Legacy of white supremacy in the form of a slaveocracy. More Union soldiers dead than all American soldiers in World War II, each life precious. That's how deep it cut. We didn't even raise the question of what it means to be a citizen in a democratic republic in any systematic way until we raised the question, what are we going to do about these ex-slaves? What is their status? That's how deep it cut. That's how integral. That's how constitutive race has been and is in the American past and present. But it's so easy to push it to the side and think that somehow the rich promise and possibility of American democracy can be enacted without confronting that legacy head on. And of course, for 12 years, America did something that was unprecedented in American history. And we see it in the development of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was very honest, of course. You recall that moment when he meets with Frederick Douglass in 1862. Frederick Douglass goes, he writes in his journal, it's the first white man I met who feels thoroughly at home with black people. Reminds you of Bill Clinton a little bit, actually. <laughs> yeah. 
Abraham Lincoln says what? He says, Mr. Douglas, I admire your oratoric skill. He said, but I've been living for over 40 years with my white fellow citizens, and I'm thoroughly convinced that the vast majority of them will never, ever treat the masses of black people decently and equally. And therefore, it's best for you to look for a place in Central America. New colony. Frederick Douglass says, I disagree with your conclusion, but I understand your insight. We got a major challenge if we're going to create a multiracial democracy. Part of the greatness of Abraham Lincoln, of course, was that, like Malcolm X, he was always growing. He was criticizing himself. By 1865, he changed his mind. He said, I've decided to support the right of Negroes to vote in New Orleans, Louisiana. I think we might have a chance to create a multiracial democracy. It's going to be very, very difficult. Something that even the founding fathers would not affirm. And of course, three days later, a white supremacist with mediocre acting talent, John Wilkes Booth, with a bullet in his head because of that decision. Because of that decision. And yet there was this grand attempt. Never in the history of the modern world had there been a shift from slave status to citizenship status. And of course, in the 1870s, we had more senators then than we do now. Lieutenant Governor of Louisiana, head of Supreme Court of South Carolina. Fascinating attempt to see whether, in fact, American democracy could become a multiracial democracy. And we're still not even dealing with the vicious legacy of male supremacy, let alone class hierarchy. But to create a multiracial democracy in light of Lincoln's vision after he changed his mind. And yet by 1877, you all know the story. The Confederacy lost the war, but white supremacy won the peace. Institutional terrorism sets in. Jim Crow, Jane Crow, American barbarism. 51 years, every two and a half days, some black child, black woman, black man hanging from some tree. Strange fruit the southern trees bear that Billie Holiday sang so beautifully about. Just at the moment when America is constituting itself as a transcontinental empire with Guam and Cuba and Philippines, Hawaii, just at the moment when Europe's poor, God bless you, <laughs> begin to make their way into the cheap labor markets of the United States to help facilitate the economic takeoff of the country. Legacy of white supremacy, immobilizing these people, sharecroppers, day laborers, tenant farmers, peonage, limitless debt. Probably in many ways the most un-American condition, the inability to move. America's all about mobility, staying on the move, right? Emerson says, everything good is on the highway. Boy, that's quintessentially American. And Henry Ford even made it more 
explicit. These folk locked in, wrestling with civic death, no rights, limited liberties in the land of liberty. And it would take nearly 80 years to hit the legacy of white supremacy head on. And I want to say something to young people about the 1960s. This is very important, the 1950s and 60s, because so much of the debate about race these days has to do with one's interpretation of the 1960s. And of course, the 60s cannot be understood unless it's understood against the backdrop of Jim Crow, Jane Crow, going back to 1877, the 12 years, and then, of course, the 244 years of slavery in America, and the 79 years America as a democratic republic. The 60s was not a period in which the vast majority of young people were flying high in the friendly skies, obsessed with rock music at Woodstock. Though some of that certainly went on. <laughs> Cannot be denied. Nor was the 60s a time in which one man led one movement that broke the back of American apartheid. Martin Luther King Jr., who is now celebrated every January, oftentimes by those who, not just critical of him, but had deep hostility toward him in the 1960s when his body was still moving in space and time. And that's black folk as well as white and red and yellow. He was not the HNIC, the head Negro in charge, ever was booted out of the largest black organization in America, the National Baptist Convention. He cut against the grain in the black community. Why? Because he was against conformity. Whoso be a civil rights activist had to be a nonconformist. He called the civil rights movement the group of the maladjusted. Maladjusted to injustice and cruelty and bigotry, not well-adjusted to the status quo. I'll say a word about the middle classes these days of all colors becoming so well-adjusted to things that they lose a sense of maladjusted consciousness, what it means to cut against the grain. He was against complacency because he was so committed. He was against cowardice because he had the courage to think critically and the courage to love and fight for justice. But the 60s was not solely about Brother Martin or even Sister Fanny. There were 329 uprisings in 257 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fanny had any control over that. The rage and the anger and the fury began to overflow. And there were 213 uprisings one night. And you all know the night I'm talking about. April 4th, 1968. Those bullets ripped through the precious body of Brother Martin on Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. National Guard brought out to protect the White House. Folk were going to de-whitenize it. <laughs> Military occupation in one city for nine months that looked like Prague, Czechoslovakia that same spring. And I'm talking about Wilmington, Delaware. You thought I was going to say Detroit, I know. Wilmington, Delaware, shaking the foundations of American society again. 
having to wait until crisis and catastrophe set in to see whether America had the intellectual, political, cultural, and economic resources to deal with this legacy. And yet it's so easy to fall back into business as usual, denial, avoidance, downplaying, and overlooking. One of the sad things about race matters in America is, is that it's a national spectacle anytime you talk about the plight and predicament of indigenous brothers and sisters, people of African descent, and women all need national legislation or acts of the court. And there's been vicious forms of discrimination against Jewish brothers and sisters, Catholic brothers and sisters, and so on, but never needing national focus and limelight. And anytime you have national focus and limelight, people begin to think it's preferential treatment. Why are you talking about them and not me? I say, no. White working class brother, we know you have pain. We know it's difficult to gain access to a job with a living wage. We know you have tremendous difficulty gaining access to health care and child care. But we're asking you to confront the most powerful, not scapegoat the most vulnerable. You see? We're asking you to simply say, there are ways of understanding your pain in such a way that you don't respond in a cowardly manner. I tell this to Brother Rush Limbaugh all the time. Well, not personally, but <laughs> publicly. I say, Brother Rush, we know who your social base is. These white brothers have been wrestling with economic decline for the last 25 years. Economic dislocation, not even viewed as human beings who are fired, they're disposable commodities who are downsized but they look to the weak, the immigrants, the women, the gays, the lesbians, the blacks, the browns. I say, oh, just like that husband who feels so powerless on the job and goes home to beat his wife. Cowardly, exercising power over the less powerful. You see. Saying what? saying in part that it's so very difficult to talk about race in America, and especially the question of what it means to be human and wrestling with the forms of varieties of death in the culture, you see. not to reinforce the worse. And that's one of the reasons why there has been and will always be a black nationalist tradition in the black community and in America. When Marcus Garvey, who led the largest mass movement among black folk to do what? To leave the country. Most of the world wants to come. <laughs> Get in on the goodies, the rights, the liberties. Marcus Garvey had three million black people that said what? 
that said, I agree with Alexis de Tocqueville. I agree with Abe Lincoln before he changed his mind. I can't conceive of a multiracial democracy. I just don't think that the vast majority of white brothers and sisters will ever treat the masses of black people decently and equally. He said, I might have a stunted imagination, but somebody give me some evidence. <laughs> that is a profound question. It's in the last chapter of Alexis de Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America, The Three Races That Inhabit This Land, that says there'll never be a multiracial democracy here. Never. And of course, it reminds me of that poignant moment six weeks before his death when Martin Luther King Jr. went to visit the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Martin turned to Elijah and said, I just think that your attempt to create a black state in Georgia and Mississippi and the panhandle of Florida and Alabama is a pipe dream. I can't conceive of it ever coming about. Elijah turned back to Martin and said, and your attempt to integrate into a burning house is a pipe dream. I can't conceive of how it will ever come about. And tears flowed from both of their faces. That's the raw stuff of the blues. That's what Henry Highland Garnett had in mind when he spoke in 1843 and said, black people never confuse your situation with that of the Israelites in the Hebrew Bible. For you, Pharaoh was on both sides of the bloody Red Sea. You are people of limited options and truncated alternatives. What are you going to do? Du Bois raised the question. We've got to keep fighting. Well, in the 1960s, when Martin left the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's house and then went to see Amiri Baraka in Newark, New Jersey, who was then a black nationalist, that was about his third incarnation. <laughs> he's serious about each one, though, isn't he? <laughs> Boy, he's full of fire. I love my brother Baraka. I love my brother Baraka. He told Martin the same thing. And that dialogue still haunts us. Namely, as we move from the late 60s after the death of Brother Martin to the year 2001, we have seen the ways in which breakthroughs have taken place. Progress certainly has occurred, but what is the nature of that progress? Brother Malcolm used to say, you don't stab a man in the back nine inches and pull it out six inches and celebrate your progress. <laughs> but the progress is still real. Look at the University of Washington, all these colorful faces. People died so that this place could be more true to its quest for truth and knowledge and come to terms with its own legacy of white supremacy. And progress has been made. But is it one in which the unprecedented opportunities for the middle classes, the upper middle classes, a few of the black and brown and red well-to-do, becomes the center of attention and the plight of predicament of working class brothers and sisters, working poor brothers and sisters of all colors, very poor brothers and sisters, the increase in deep 
poverty, those fellow citizens who make 50% of the poverty level income, increasing. And very little attention, limelight, or preoccupation with them as their lives become more impoverished, chaotic, dislocated, deracinated, and lacerated. Raw cannon fodder for the criminal justice system that targets them with a war against drugs, very much a war on poor black and brown and white men. A doubling of the prison system in the last six years, 2.1 fellow human beings in prison. More black prisoners now than all of American prisoners five years ago. Where's the discourse? Their destiny is linked to our destiny. We're all on the same ship, and if that ship has huge leaks in it, we go up together, we go down together. Where is the democratic sensibility there? Which is to say, public interest, common good. How do we relate to each other as fellow citizens mediating our disagreements with civility and mutual respect? That's why that first question of what it means to be human is inseparable from the second that the black freedom movement has always raised. Are we serious about democratic ideals and practices? Or is it for the most part a lip service that we use to hide and conceal the oligarchic, plutocratic, to some degree pigmentocratic economy? <laughs> Are we serious? about the fundamental question of any democracy, which is how do we curtail the use of arbitrary power against fellow citizens? And you always begin with the most immediate form of arbitrary power, which is police power. Police power. That's the litmus test. That's the litmus test. If somehow we think that deploying arbitrary police power, I didn't say legitimate police power, and I certainly don't want to demonize policemen. <laughs> they human beings, the fellow citizens, they part of working class. The salary's too low, risk too high, but too many of them trigger happy when it comes to black male bodies, brown male bodies. You see, just reading the New York Times today, all four officers. Shot Brother Diallo 41 times. No discipline whatsoever. A little retraining on ethnic, ethnic sensitivity. <laughs> Just in Sacramento, where I grew up, another 17-year-old black brother, tip of the iceberg. Across the board. And it affects each and every one of us as citizens. Arbitrary power deployed. Could be corporate power. Arbitrary governmental power. There I'm with the right wing brothers and sisters. I'm not for a big government out of control that has no accountability. But corporate power, often unaccountable, deploying its arbitrary power against working people. Individual power, men against women, straight against gay lesbians. That's what a democracy is. If we're serious about it, then we cast the national limelight on it. And of course, I'm not suggesting it doesn't take place at all in America. 
part of the greatness of the country is there's always been a leaven in the loaf. There's always been citizens of all colors who are willing to attempt to cast a limelight on it, but they always cut against the grain, against the dominant grain. But see, democracy is more than just a mode of governance. It's a way of being in the world. It is experimental, improvisational, jazz-like. It's about fundamentally believing those who slide stone call everyday people, have a sense of the tragic and majestic and problematic shot through their lives, and they are just as valuable as elites. Sly say everybody is a star. Earth, wind, and fire say everybody's a shining star. <laughs> Each and every one of us, unique, distinctive, irreproducible, of value, dignity, Christian discourse in the eyes of God, in my good day. Judaic discourse on my good day, Islamic discourse in my good day, Buddhists, Hindus, all have their own formulations in their prophetic form of the uniqueness of each and every one of us. And then, of course, James Weldon Johnson and his brother Rosamond come along and say, that's why we ought to lift every voice. And when the voices of the demos, the voices of everyday people, those who the late great James Cleveland called ordinary people, when their voices are heard, they would not choose dilapidated housing. They wouldn't choose decrepit schools, systems of education in our public life. They wouldn't choose jobs that don't provide a living wage. They wouldn't choose lack of health care or unavailable child care. Their voices must be hemorrhaged when it comes to fundamental decisions being made in the society. That's what it means of taking democracy seriously all the way down. Now granted, there's always counter-majoritarian institutions like courts that must preserve the very conditions for the possibility of democracy, rights, liberties, freedom of association, speech and worship. Yes, but who really takes democracy seriously? That's cross-color. We can look at the art form of jazz. Well, you better find your voice. Accent your individuality in community so you can contribute to the high quality of the collective performance. John Coltrane quit imitating Johnny Hodges. Imitation is suicide. Find your voice. Each citizen dig deep into the precincts of your own soul and examine the suburbs of your heart and find your voice and get it out. Not just your self-interest, but your voice that balances enlightened self-interest with public interest and common good. And by voice here, I'm not just talking about votes in Florida now. <laughs> we can talk about that later, but that's a reductionist. <laughs> Though it's still a problem. But it's much deeper than that because, of course, when large slices of the demos feel as if their voice is not being heard. They feel helpless, impotent. They turn on themselves. They turn on each other. Every generation 
and wrestling with the question of what it means to be human and how one takes democracy seriously has to accent the underside of their present moment in light of the past to ensure that the future can be a little bit better and maybe even qualitatively better than the present. We were here in 1941, three fragile democracies in the whole world. We talk about fascist forces, Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, Japanese militaristic elites crushing all democratic possibilities. So even a white supremacist democracy like America is in the eyes of most of us worth fighting for in a segregated army in which black soldiers were treated worse than German prisoners of war in many instances. America's still worth fighting for. Why? Because if Hitler takes over, the whole world is niggerized other than Germans. Open season on them. Treat them anyway. Subject to abusive power. This is the generation Brother Tom Brokaw so excited about and rightly so. They met a grand challenge. We're here in 1965, break the back of American apartheid, or we slide down a slippery slope to chaos and anarchy because we would be at each other's throats. And young folk may take it for granted, but there was a kind of war going on. Many, many casualties. To keep alive the best of American democracy as it confronted that particular version of white supremacy. Year 2001, what are the challenges, especially for the younger generation? First, relation between race and escalating galloping wealth inequality. 1% of the population own 48% of the net financial wealth, and the next 7% own another 30%. And it has been increasing over the last 15 years, be the administration Democratic or Republican, both beholden to disproportionate amount of corporate influence, transnational corporate influence and domestic corporate influence. No serious discussion about it. The sacred cow of American democracy being economic growth by means of corporate priority. And if we don't keep that growth going by means of corporate priorities, the very conditions of America st American stability go under. And we've seen what? Real hourly wages of working people increased 4% over 20-some years, and CEO salaries increased 425%. CEO salaries for the Fortune 500 companies, 925%. Now, between 1945 and 1973, corporate profits go up, wages went up. Why? A contract had been made, a consensus had been reached, a workers' movement in place that ensured high levels of productivity, workers can get in on it. It snaps in the 70s. It's now corporations mean and lean for stockholders and workers trying to adjust the best way they can. That's why we have 6.5 million fellow citizens who work for, 6.5 million fellow citizens of moms and dads who work four jobs between the, those two. 
four jobs in one family. Don't receive a penny from the federal government. Frugal, thrifty, deferring gratification, but still making very little progress. Hardly any talk about them at all. And of course, on an international level, my God, one individual has wealth equivalent to the bottom 48 countries. And that individual is no longer in Seattle. <laughs> you got a new one now. You see, Brother Bill Gates always struck me as a highly generous brother. I've never met him before. He gives quite generously in the form of philanthropy. And philanthropy is a very rich tradition in America, but we must never confuse charity with justice. Charity is much better than no charity. Don't get me wrong. And even the well-to-do are human beings who make choices and decisions that can have positive effects. No finger pointing a name calling a pigeonholing, let alone demonizing. But we're talking about structures and institutions. The top 100 individuals have wealth equivalent to the bottom 48% of humankind, 2.6 billion human beings. Where is the discourse? It's hard to generate it. It began here in Seattle in part in terms of putting it on the national and international scene. And people may be preoccupied with some of the anarchistically inclined brothers and sisters. And I have my own critiques I can bring to bear. But they were not the only ones here in Seattle. Not at all. People concerned about corporate-driven globalization as opposed to democratically-driven globalization, mechanisms of accountability for all of the productivity and wealth being produced. Look at NAFTA now, 27% decline in Mexican workers' wages. That was supposed to be so grand and progressive. How do we measure it? Whether economy's better. Well, what do you mean by economy here? Is it from the vantage point of Wall Street or is it from the vantage point of the workplace? And most importantly, especially younger generation understands this better than older brothers like me. If we look at American society through the vantage point of the most vulnerable children, not just the 19% of children living in poverty across color, it's only 4% in Japan. It's only 7% in Germany, which is a country not known to be on the cutting edge of the barbaric 20th century in regard to social justice. 19%. 45% of red children. 42% of brown. 40% of black children. 100% of the future. Where's the discourse? Where's the focus? One of the things I like about George W. Bush is that at least he shifted the discourse to the plight of children in the inner city in regard to education. Couldn't get that out of Bill Clinton. He's more concerned about the swing vote. Couldn't get it out of Al Gore. He's more concerned about the swing vote. He couldn't even mention the phrase poor children. Always middle class, and he began to say working class with a little populist twist when the polls began to fall. I may disagree with George W. Bush's free marketeer responses to how you deal with 
that plight. But it's the focus that is so necessary. Why? Because we have never seen a generation so isolated, lonely, alienated, spiritually malnutrition, suffering from spiritual malnutrition and existential emptiness in the history of the country. All you have to do is visit a public school in any, not just Chocolate City, but Vanilla Suburb too. San Diego is just the tip of an iceberg. Columbine, tip of an iceberg. Why? Families weak, communities feeble, neighborhoods transformed into hoods. And that's just not in black and brown communities. I'm talking about suburbs too. A hood is a place where social Darwinian sensibilities are predominant in which people are obsessed with the survival of the slickest. Preoccupied with the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. 71% of high school students say they cheat regularly on exams because it's all about that American goal of success, capital S. Get over by any means. It's part of the significance of the hip hop culture. One of the creative breakthroughs of the last 30 years with the younger generation engages in an indictment of the older generation that says you haven't given us enough love, care, attention. You left us drifting. We have to raise ourselves. We'll create our own black CNN to provide advice and counsel as to how to grow up. Because you older folk are too preoccupied with other things, careerism, hedonism, narcissism, individualism. What an indictment. And then we get upset about gangster rap. And they say, look, what we see is the ultimate logic of this market-driven culture obsessed with buying and spending and promoting and advertising is the gangsterization of culture. You see? We see gangster activity in White House, State House, City Hall, church, mosque, temple. That's what we see. Now, we might be a little more raw and coarse in our forms of expression. But isn't it all about that fetish of our day, the market, which is a legal and human construct that can do good things and bad things and under various conditions? But women ascribe magical powers to it. It's all about getting over. Win the election at any cost. And that's 1996. The financial scandal. 2000, any cost. I'm here now. <laughs> Don't worry about the past. I'm here now. We moved in. What was the process? Young folks see that. No such thing as young people's behavior that's not disproportionately influenced by older people's behavior. Can a democracy survive with such a market-driven culture in which non-market activities are pushed to the margin? And of course, the ultimate non-market activity in American culture is parenting, caring, loving, supporting, nurturing, push to the margin. And we see the results. Will the younger generation have what it takes to revitalize, regenerate, and reinvigorate the best of American democracy? That's an open question. And to talk about this through the prism of race is not to remain stuck in that prism, but to make sure we don't sidestep it, but take us to higher levels of its relation to class, gender, corporate power, patriarchal power, 
You all been very kind and patient. I want to bring this to an end. But I want to end on the blue note. You can see I'm not optimistic. <laughs> I don't believe in optimism. I don't believe in pessimism. Black folks saying I've been down so long that down don't worry me no more, but I'll keep struggling anyway. That is not an optimistic statement nor a pessimistic statement. It's neither sentimental nor cynical. It's an expression of hope, and hope is not the same thing as optimism. Never confuse or conflate hope with optimism. Hope cuts against the grain. Hope is participatory. It's an agent in the world. Optimism looks at the evidence and see whether it allows us to infer that we can do X or Y. Hope says, I don't give a damn. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. When white brothers and sisters undergo the metamorphosis by means of critical thinking, by means of compassion, they say, I'm going to fight against white supremacy. I'm not, asking from, I'm not asking permission from anybody. I might not even be popular in the black community. I'm not asking for their permission. I'm doing it because it's right and it's just and it's moral, and I want to be that kind of person. I want that kind of society. I'm against heterosexism for the same reason, anti-Arab sensibility for the same reason. Why? Because that's the kind of trace I want to leave. That's the kind of legacy I want to leave behind. You see? That's the Socratic note and the blue note coming together. You see? Mediated with the prophetic and the humanistic. And it says, of course, if you're a prisoner of hope, you will be wrestling with despair. Goethe is right. He or she who has never despaired has never lived. You don't know what it is to be human if you never wrestle with despair. But never allow that despair to have the last word. And it's that effort, that sense of engagement that has kept the best of American democracy alive. Can we do it in the year 2001? Open question. It might be that the civilization is in such deep decline and decay that like Rome, it will simply begin to slowly slide down the slope. All civilizations come and go, and there will come a day when American civilization dies like every civilization. But let's hope that it doesn't take place on our watch. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. And I say to you, for those who are willing to meet the challenge, I'll be there with you because I'm going down swinging like Sarah Vaughn, Duke Ellington, and Muhammad Ali. Thank you all so very much. Stay strong. I'm with you. I'm with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Right. I know um, we could we could probably stay here all night asking questions. We'll take just one or two, and so if you have a question, uh, not a comment, a question, please come down to the microphones there on either side. And as I said, we'll take just, just a few, and then we're going to have to call the evening to a close. Uh, our, our campus here is one of several 
that has wrestled with the question of whether to run or not to run David Horowitz's ad uh, against reparations for African Americans. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the kind of the controversy swirling around his right to or the uh, editorial decision not to run that ad. Yes, no, I appreciate the question. I mean, one thing that uh, I'm a libertarian when it comes to uh, robust and uninhibited discourse, which means I believe in the right of each and every one of us to make fools of ourselves. <laughs> the question is that the Horowitz ad strikes me as more a commercial ad than a political one. He's trying to raise money. That is a very different kind of status than political intervention into a discourse. Now, he knows, and many of you know, that we have a reparations coordinating committee that's been at work for a year and a half under the grand leadership of Randall Robinson and, and Brother Charles Ogletree and, and Sister Adjua Ayatero. We've been meeting every four and a half weeks, and in about 16, 18 months, we're going to bring the biggest case ever brought against U.S. government and the private sector in reparations. And therefore, we need to have a discourse about it. We need to have a discourse about it. We have to begin to show that by confronting the ugly past, we can actually create deeper conceptions of American citizenship and bring persons together, given the fact that we're already de facto segregated, de facto balkanized. And what particular form it takes, an open question. Of course, John Conyers in, in Congress has been raising this for a long time, to have a public discussion about the issue. And so David Horowitz is trying to move in quickly. And I don't mind, in terms of political intervention, commercial ad is something else. You see, when you, when you, when you, when you send that to a newspaper, that soliciting money, that's one thing. You send it to a newspaper to, to present your opinion per se, that's something else. And I'm a libertarian across the board. I think that people all have a right to say whatever they want to, want to say, but it's, we have to talk about what status of the ad actually is. Quickly, yes. Thank you, uh, Dr. West, for sharing your knowledgeable wisdom. I would like to touch on your grassroots. I'm reading a book about the meaning of prayer by uh, Harry Fosick. Oh, I would man. like to know your interpretation of the meaning of prayer, or your opinion. Well, brother, that's a deep question. I can't really answer that profound question. <laughs> Let me tell you one thing. You know, you're reading a powerful book. Harold Fosdick is one of the towering figures of American religion, American spirituality. He had tremendous impact on giants like Reverend Gardner Taylor, Reverend Manuel Scott, Martin Luther King Jr., Carolyn Knight, and so forth. So you're reading the right book, and that book has much more insight than I do. But at the same time, the brother, the question is just so, so, so uh, tough, it's hard to put it in a nutshell in terms of meaning of prayer. What I like about prayer, of course, is humility, the acknowledgement of limits, that we can do all that we can do and acknowledge at the same time that we're, we have faults and foibles, we're imperfect, we're, we're finite, we're fallen, and so forth. And to unpack each and every one of these, you can imagine, is two seminars in and of itself. But uh, uh, that's just the beginning of an answer. But you got the right text, though, brother. Fosdick has some powerful things to say. Absolutely. Right ahead. Dr. West, uh, how, how can we break up this uh, market-driven society that we've got? I'm a, a working stiff like everybody else. I'm trying to make my monthly mortgage payment. I can't afford to take to the streets and demonstrate. What can a guy like me do to break up this stranglehold that these corporations have on us? Well, I mean, I think the crucial thing right now is we have to strengthen the countervailing forces against the unaccountable market power. And those are democratic forces. Democratic forces brought to bear by the nation state. Democratics brought to bear by citizens groups, community groups, in our own lives, navigating and negotiating between the market-driven character of the culture, reward structures that reward those who are more concerned with the bottom line in terms of market calculations as opposed to the quality of human relations 
and interactions, you see. So there's an individual choice, there's a political choice, and there is an interpersonal choice. But you do have to be organized. So when you say that, yeah, I know you're very busy and things, you got to take a little time out to be, become part of an organization. If you're religious, accent the prophetic synagogue, the prophetic mosque, the prophetic church and so forth. If you're not religious, a secular organization. There are these countervailing forces against unaccountable market powers are indispensable. And of course, when it's projected internationally, it becomes even more important because we don't have global political institutions, but we have global economic realities. So there's no accountability for those global economic powers. And they're shaping the world more and more in their own image. And that's what Quebec City in part is about. That's what Seattle was about. Yes, Dr. West, I was privileged to also see you on the Smiley Forum on the State of the uh, Nation of Black America. And I thought during the forum that you hinted that the possibility of perhaps going green next time. Um, going, uh, going green or, or choosing a, a candidate from the Green Party. Oh, oh yes. Uh, could you comment on that possibility? Absolutely. I thought by green you meant money rather than Green Party. I thought, <laughs> no, we got no, indeed, indeed. No, I mean, of course, I supported our brother Bill Bradley, who's my very dear friend and brother. He is a Diana Wool liberal. I'm a radical Democrat, which means we don't agree on everything, but we have significant overlap. You know, and I love him like a brother. I supported him. His candidacy could not take off in the way I thought it ought. And uh, I supported Ralph Nader during the election. You know, people come back to me now, now you're... You must feel guilty and so forth. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> not at all. The Democratic Party disrespected progressives. Right. And certainly, disrespect, certainly disrespected black progressives. You said, if you don't talk about the criminal justice system, given what's going on to young black brothers and brown brothers, you say nothing about incarceration. You say nothing about the poor children. No leadership of such a community can support without serious accountability and critique. You see, Ralph Nader talked explicitly about these issues, and of course he also supported reparations. The problem was is that Ralph Nader is not as well known in the larger national community, let alone the black and brown uh, communities. Sister Winona LaDuke, of course, from uh, uh, the, the indigenous people's community, ran as vice president, but they were not as well known. They were also, for the most part, barred from the national conversation, couldn't gain access to the debates, became very clear that bipartisanship really meant corporate auspices as well as the two parties ensuring that no other voices gain access. You see what I mean? So we've got to explode this notion of bipartisanship. Right? We want robust, uninhibited discourse across the country. You see what I mean? But we'll see on the next, we'll see the next go around. I'm not a dogmatist. I'm not an ideologue in that sense. I'm open to possibilities. I would have loved to see the Democrats take the House and have Conyers and others heading some of these committees if the Democrats had won. But I'm losing trust in the capacity of the Democratic Party to muster the kind of courage to fight the deeply conservative policies that are now being put forward by uh, fellow citizen George W. Bush. I think this right will have to be the last right question. Or maybe just these three. Is that no. right? Just they got to be quick. They just quick. Be quick. I'll be quick. Enough. Dr. West. How you doing? I love your fro too, though, brother. Go right ahead. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I dig it, too. <laughs> but check it. Um, with major corporations replacing government and America being desensitized through media, do you really feel reparations is a reality in America? 
You mean reparations being possible? Yes. Oh, we don't know. And if not, what do you think is going to happen? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know that, we just don't know. And I don't want to cut you off like that, though. But, but I think the challenge for us is, especially again for young people, we need more cultural workers in mass media, making films, trying to call into question a lot of these ugly stereotypes. And they're not just white supremacist stereotypes. It's hard to keep track of the humanity of white brothers and sisters on television because they're also flattened out, you see. But we need cultural workers to make moves in those terrains. One of the wonderful things about having the opportunity to go to the University of Washington is this is a site for elite formation, right? Produce a disproportionate number of elites here in Seattle, the region, and the country. That's what gives it its tremendous weight and gravity. The question is, as elites, how will you use it? How will you deploy your, your clout in that regard? Not to become a martyr, because most people are not going to become a martyr. I mean, some of us are going to die because, you know, you got to take bullets and some people die and some don't. But we're not asking people to die. Just asking people to take a stand within their own context. You see what I mean? And, and it, it, that, so when I say we don't know, it partly depends on what I do, what you do. The future is predicated in part on the quality of action that we engage in now as individuals as well as collectivities. And that's what I mean when we just don't know. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. Go right ahead. Um, I guess it's okay. Last year, I, I was listening to NPR, and I heard a, a seminar you had done on Paul Robeson. And this isn't the question, but it was so beautiful, brother. It was so enlightening that I, I just wanted to say something about that. Um, the question is this, though. How do we get this generation? We've, and by we've, I mean our generation, not you and I, but our generation has left this generation a hell of a legacy where one out of four black males, their contemporaries are now in the joint or on some kind of paper according to the criminal justice system. Now these are people that these students are gonna have to deal with. How do we impress upon them that it is their responsibility to meet this challenge and to make sure that these people don't get disenfranchised and don't have to do something to turn to turn the joint out yeah. because you yeah. talked about Cincinnati and that's what is really about to happen things things perhaps are getting a lot worse than people in institutions like this even realize but people seem to have the power here if they would do something to address that problem that's all. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a very important question, though, brother. It really is. First, of course, I want to begin by uh, accenting the positive about the hip-hop generation. <laughs> that you know the No More Prisons CD in the prison moratorium movement was initiated by the younger generation. It's very much the, the struggle around Brother Mumia, the younger generation. You see. There is an attention to it. Dead Prez has much to say. Most Def has much to say. Common has much to say. Lauren Hill has much to say, you see. That is to say, there are voices of the younger generation that are focusing on it. The question, the, the, the problem is those voices are not as visible. Now, you and I know in our generation, you know, it was about 9 or 10% of us who were really out on the street struggling. The rest watched it on television. See what I mean? So it wasn't a whole generation. You know what I mean? For every Curtis Mayfield, you got somebody just singing in the club about some apolitical X and Y. They may have a nice voice, but it wasn't like they in the struggle. You see what I mean? <laughs> so that we have to keep that in mind. Every generation has a significant slice of folk who are willing to throw down. 
and we're trying to solicit those young folk of all colors who are willing to do that. It's never a mass movement. Cowardliness is ubiquitous. <laughs> it really is, cross-color and so on. But to make that link more tight, which is you and I are calling for, I agree. And therefore, I think we have to spend much more time trying to uh, spend time communicating so on. I mean, I, for example, I'll give you an example. I got a CD coming out in two months. In two months. Intervening into hip hop culture called hype hop. Elevate the quality of the discourse. Connect the most precious heritage, not just the black people, but the country, which is music, to the struggle for freedom. You see what I mean? Last poets, Gil Scott Heron, Curtis, all of them coming back, you see. And the younger generation is more and more hungry for this. And of course, my voice is just one little small voice, and you know I'm not a rapper. I'm just finding my voice in the pocket of the music, you see. But I, I want to create much more space for that younger generation to support KRS-One and Chuck D with the hip-hop temple down in Los Angeles that's institutionalizing progressive views through the music, linked to the education in the deep sense. Not just the schooling, but the education in the deep sense. For what? Connection. Now, you got a lot of sororities and fraternities and churches and so forth already involved in mentoring programs. I applaud them. That's a wonderful thing. But we can't do it simply one-on-one. One-on-one -on -one. One -on -one is, is rich, is precious, but we need to critique the institutions and structures as well. That's the kind of thing we need to have. But it is increasing, and I must say, this generation, very different from the one in the 1980s. You know, I've been teaching now for 26 years. And this generation is very different than the 1980s. Right now at Harvard, they've taken over the president's office for what? Living wage for working people. Living wage. That's significant. And that's just one example across the nation. But the important thing is we never ever look for mass movements that encompass the vast majority of any generation. Most people just making it for womb to tomb and trying to find just a little meaning and love and a little kindness before they die. You know what I mean? They, they don't have time. Unless they got to go to war. Thank you, brother. I but thank you, especially thank you for the Paul Robeson thing, though, because oh, that was we just, we can't forget, uh, we can't forget Brother Paul, you know. I know we brought, you know, some critique to bear in terms of his, uh, his, his attitudes towards Soviet Union and the repression and regimentation, and rightly so, but it was a loving critique, and it was a critique that accented the best of Paul's grandstand against white supremacy and, and economic inequality in America, and of course, what an artist, what a renaissance man, what deep love in his heart. Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah, go right ahead. You say you're not a rapper, but I beg to differ. <laughs> um, I just really, really, really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here. I am a transplant from the East Coast. <laughs> and so when I heard you were coming, I just felt like, oh, the East Coast is meeting the West Coast, yeah. So thank wait, wait, you. Which part of the East Coast are you from? New York. I live in New York. Wait, wait, which <laughs> borough are you from? Well, I lived. Oh, I lived all over. I lived in Manhattan. I lived in the Bronx. I lived in Brooklyn, and then finally I lived in Albany, New York. So. Well, that was a drop, though, wasn't it? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I went to the University of Albany, and then when Bell Hooks came up there, and this is what I came up to tell you is. Um, when you see her, give her a big, big hug for me and from the West Coast. Um, Bell Hook is just 
such an inspiration for me. And your dialogue has been really company and community for me. And the question is, are you doing anything with her? What is happening with your conversation? Mm -hmm. No, I appreciate both kind words as well as a question. Um, Bell Hooks, of course, is, both means much to me, and we had such a grand time both working on the book, and we must have traveled to 27 states after that book, Breaking Bread, came out in 1991, wrestling with issues. I still got so much, you know, male supremacy in me that I've got a lot of work to do and hope somebody's <laughs> praying for me. Uh, um, but she's pushed, and that's the important thing. It was a pushing that empowered and enabled me rather than paralyzed me because I've come out of a context that's deeply homophobic, deeply patriarchal, and yet it was still a lot of good stuff there. You know what I mean? In the church, and on the block, in the parties, in the dialogue, in the library. And Belle brought tremendous critique to bear, so she's helped me to grow, but I've got much growing to do, and I may have even helped her grow a little bit. We, we, about a year ago, we had the, uh, uh, two lectures together, and so it depends on our schedules and what have you. She's in New York City. And, uh, t she's recently resigned, I think, from City University, I'm told. I was just talking to Michelle Wallace today about that. Uh, but she's just so precious and has made such a grand contribution. And she's probably the most prolific intellectual of her generation in terms of uh, texts that she's continually producing and so on, you know. But I shall, well, I always give her a hug, so I'll give her two hugs. Okay. I'll give her two hugs. Thank then. you. Uh -huh. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. supporters of BLC. If you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.